Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Today, between 42% to 45% of marriages will end in divorce. That's actually a slight improvement because in the last 20 years, some people would say that it was many as 50% of marriages will end in divorce. Divorce is touching everyone and it's everywhere. Uh, maybe it, divorce has happened in your immediate family and if not in your immediate family, probably in your extended family. And as I was doing some research in preparation for this message where we're going to look at the topic of divorce, I ran across some interesting divorce statistics that I thought would be fun for us to share about here at the front at the beginning. Does anybody have any idea what the average age is that people go through a divorce? Is it like 50? What do you think? Lower? Higher? Lower. Yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's age 30. Age 30 is the average age that people go through a, a divorce. Uh, do you know what state of the union has the most divorces in it? What's that? California, California actually not. It's Arkansas. Yeah, and I think if you have a team like the Razorbacks, everybody's upset and that explains it. <laughs> now, do you know what state of the union has the least amount of divorces? Iowa is right. And you know why that is? The winters are so cold, people are willing to put up with each other. Uh, that's probably the honest, honest truth. Uh, a couple other pieces of interesting information. I learned that the more money that is spent on the wedding, the more likely a divorce will happen. So I have a daughter who's not married yet, and I'm going to remind her of that when she comes to me. Being the father of the bride, I'm going to want to save whatever money I can. Uh, something else to tell you that'd be interesting. Do you know what the most, uh, the greatest contributing factor to divorce is nowadays? Anybody know? Money? Well, in one sense, money, but really there's another contributing factor that's really become very strong in recent years, and that is social media. One in three divorces, they say, begin as an affair that or happen because of an affair that started online. Now, divorce is very common in our society. In fact, there's, it's becoming something that is no longer even, um, people are not even sad about it anymore. They're actually beginning to celebrate divorce in our society. Oftentimes you have a, a wedding party after you get married. Now there's something called a divorce party after you get divorced that is becoming pretty popular. In fact, there's even a divorce party handbook that you can buy online to tell you how to properly celebrate your divorce. And I've thought about this. It seems like our society really is struggling to figure out what's right and what's wrong when you're actually celebrating a, a marital breakdown. But it's not just our society that's struggling to understand divorce and remarriage. But I think Christians are under, struggling to understand it as well. You see, some Christians will think that divorce is wrong in all situations at all the time. And then you have Christians that are on the other side 
that say, well, divorce, it really doesn't happen. It doesn't matter. It can happen to anybody for any reason whatsoever, and they just sort of accept it. But what does the Bible say? When is divorce right? When is divorce wrong? What does God say are acceptable grounds for divorce? Those are the questions that we're going to look at this morning. Some of you know that we are currently in a study through the Gospel of Mark. And right now in the study of the Gospel of Mark, we're getting closer and closer to Jesus going into the city of Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, the very end of his life. And prior to that, Jesus has been teaching his disciples key things about what it means to live as a disciple of Christ. And this week, he is going to be teaching his disciples about the issue of divorce. So I'd like to ask you to take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 together. Uh, I would like you to stand out of reverence for God's Word once we have it. And I'd also like you to follow along in your copy of God's Word while I read these 12 verses. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Well, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, Well, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. That ends the reading of God's Word, and you may be seated. What we're going to do this morning is we're just going to work through these verses consecutively, one right after the other, and then when we get to the end of these verses, we're going to widen the angle of the lens a little bit and see what not just these verses say about divorce, but what does the entire Bible say about this topic of divorce. So let's begin at the very top. Let's look at, take out your outlines. We're going to look at the background. In verse 1, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Jeremy, can you put that map up there for me? Thank you. Last week when we were in chapter 9, we saw that Jesus was in the city of Capernaum, which was sort of his hometown area on the Sea of Galilee. We had seen that Jesus had gone north to Caesarea Philippi for a while and, and come back. He was back in Capernaum. He was in Peter's house. Now, as we go from chapter 9 to chapter 10, we find that there is a big jump in there. Jesus has gone down to Judea, and then he has gone to the area of 
east of the east of the Jordan River. So he's gone down to this area that I've put in that box called Perea. And so we see there is a large geographical jump between Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. Not only is there a large geographical jump where Mark jumps over some things that happened, there is a large chronological jump. We knew that when we were in Mark chapter 9, it was approximately six months before Jesus is crucified. Now we've also accelerated a few months into those six months. I don't know where we're at, but it's much closer to Jesus entering Jerusalem. What you do is you, if you line up the four Gospels, you find that the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John tell us that when Jesus came down from Capernaum after what we were looking at in Mark chapter 9 last week, he actually went down to the area of Judea right there above Jerusalem and he had ministry in Judea in that area for a few months before he then moved on to the area of Perea where he's going to have a ministry in the area of Perea, which is where this 10th chapter picks up. And I simply tell you this, that if you were to lay out all four Gospels, Matthew and Mark jump over this ministry in Judea that he has for a few months, and they go directly to the ministry in Perea, where Luke and John do not jump over that. You'll see details of him having ministry in Judea, and then they'll also move on to ministry in the area of Perea. So I understand the large geographical jump that you see between these chapters and also the large chronological jump of several months that take place. But the obvious thing you need to see is wherever Jesus goes, he draws a crowd, doesn't he? He is now a long way from home and people recognize him, people want to be with him, and he teaches them as is his custom. So as Jesus is teaching them, what we find here is the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus, trap him on this topic of divorce. Verse 2, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Remember who the Pharisees are. These are the guys who are the ultra-conservative Jews. They have been dogging Jesus for most of this gospel. We saw early on in the Gospel of Mark that they had made a decision that they have to have Jesus die. We have to bump him off in a big way because Jesus' rising popularity is a threat to their political power. So they want to get rid of him. As Jesus is now getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish life, they are getting more and more interested in getting rid of him. And as Jesus is teaching in this area, they decide to lob across to him what sounds like a very innocent question, but actually it is a very loaded question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, just so you know, 
Mark, and this will be helpful for us in the balance of the study, he provides a very short account of this particular incident. Matthew, which is, has a parallel account, describes the same thing, but Matthew provides a much longer account and throws in some additional details that for you and me are helpful to understand what is transpiring in this situation. And actually, Matthew's account of this question is helpful for us in this situation. Uh, look what Matthew says they actually asked him in a little more details. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's helpful to know. Can you divorce your wife for any reason? And what you need to understand is divorce in this time was a hot button topic both religiously and it was a hot button topic politically. Let me explain. First of all, the topic of divorce was controversial for religious reasons. There was only one particular text in the Old Testament Mosaic Law that addresses the issue of divorce. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Let me read for you the first verse of Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and then it continues on from there. But people in that day had latched on to this. Ah, look, men, they can divorce their wives if they found something indecent in her. The big question becomes, well, what does that mean? What is something indecent in your wife that would be rationale to divorce your wife? There were two major schools of thought in that day. One by Rabbi Hillel and another by Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Hillel is the liberal in the group, and Rabbi Shammai is the conservative in the group. And so nothing's different than today. It's a big fight between the liberals and the conservatives, which is all you need to do is watch the news, and it's the same thing today. Let me explain to you what Rabbi Hillel said about this verse and what something indecent meant. And by the way, Rabbi Hillel makes the far-left Democrats look really conservative when you listen to what he has to say. He says uh, something indecent could mean anything at all. You can divorce your wife for any reason you want. And here's some examples he gives you of reasons you can divorce your wife. If she happened to burn your dinner, you can divorce her. If you don't like the quality of her cooking, you can divorce her. If she happens to have her hair down in public, you can divorce her. If she shows her ankles in public, you can divorce her. If you've considered her annoying, you can divorce her. If she ever makes a negative comment about her mother-in-law, he said, you can divorce her. And of course, he goes on to say, if you happen to find somebody more attractive, you can divorce her as well. So Rabbi Hillel's view on easy divorce for any and every reason was actually the popular view in that day. It was the prevailing view in that day. 
which is why the Pharisees ask Jesus, is it right for a man to divorce his wife without cause? Any reason you wanted. Society in that day was called the quick and easy divorce society. Here is all you needed to do to divorce your wife. Write on a piece of paper that you are divorcing your wife and put the reason on the piece of paper and hand it to her. You did not need a lawyer. You did not need a waiting period. You did not need to pay legal fees. You didn't even have to have it notarized. All you needed to do was hand it to her and send it away. That was the popular view and that was the prevailing view for most people in that day because you could divorce her for anything indecent. Thankfully, <clears throat> Rabbi Hillel was not the only popular rabbi in that day, but there was another one called Rabbi Shammai who had a little more of a conservative outlook on things. Let me tell you about him. He believed the indecency talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 24 had something to do with marital impropriety. In other words, you could not divorce your wife because you didn't like her cooking. It had to be something that she did that was maritally unacceptable. Like maybe she talked to too many men in public. Or she let down her hair and exposed her ankles too much in public. So it was a marital impropriety. Then he said it was acceptable for you to divorce your wife. Now, by the way, neither of these rabbis were addressing the issue of adultery. What they were addressing were issues you could divorce your wife prior to adultery. Because in that day, there was very clear biblical instruction about what to do if your wife was adulterous on you. What do you think it was? She died. Exactly. Leviticus chapter 20. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Incidentally, the Romans didn't let the Jews actually carry this out. So they were not out there killing all the adulterers. So instead of killing the adulterers, it was sort of an obvious thing. You were able to divorce your wife if she committed adultery. Now, in the context of this conservative and liberal debate, the Pharisees have asked Jesus this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They know the view that Jesus holds. We know that earlier in Jesus' ministry, we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, he's already expressed his views on divorce. And Jesus holds a really conservative view of, on divorce. But we also know that Jesus is in a culture that is very liberal on their views on divorce, where you can divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever. So you can see the Pharisees are trying to set Jesus up, aren't they? They're trying to get Jesus to lose his popularity, express his conservative views on divorce in a ultra-liberal society on divorce. It's a little bit like encouraging Trump to hold a Make America Great Again rally at the University of California, Berkeley. How well do you think that will go? 
Exactly. That's exactly what these Pharisees are trying to do in this moment. Try and set Jesus up for a major political and popularity failure. By the way, just to illustrate to you uh, that this society of this day had a very casual view on divorce, let me just jump to uh, some writings of Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian that lived at this time. He's not a Christian. It's a great way to, so to speak, read the newspaper in this day because that's what Josephus is doing. He's just a historian recording history of this day. And Josephus talks about what a man should do when he wants to divorce his wife. And it's pretty simple in his mind. He that desires to be divorced from his wife for any cause, you see that right there? Whatsoever, and many such causes happen among men, he throws in, let him in writing give assurance that he will never use her as his wife anymore. For by this means he may be at liberty to marry, she may be at marry, liberty to marry another husband. Although before this bill of divorce be given, she is not permitted to do that. So you want to divorce your wife for any reason? Just give her a piece of paper, send her away, and you're good to go. That's what Josephus says. Now I told you that the topic of divorce was controversial for religious reasons. But it was also controversial in this day for political reasons as well. Remember where Jesus is. He's in the area of Perea. He is just east of the Jordan River. Does anybody remember somebody else who had ministry in this area? Somebody who was hanging around the Jordan River and getting people wet? Yeah, John the Baptist. Remember what was going on? This is the area where Herod Antipas is in control with his wife Herodias. Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of King Eretus. He divorced her for absolutely no reason at all so he could marry Herodias who was originally his own brother's wife. And Herodias divorced Herod Philip, Herod Antipas' brother, for no reason at all, simply so she could marry her husband's brother. Well, John the Baptist, he was critical of this easy, casual divorce of a king to get a different queen. And what happened? Herod Antipas arrested John for it. Herodias schemed and planned to have John the Baptist executed for it. And here is Jesus on the exact same ground, in the exact same territory, under Herod Antipas' rule. And the Pharisees are saying, if we can just get Jesus to state his views on divorce, which are just like John the Baptist's, maybe Herod Antipas will arrest him. Maybe Herodias will bump him off, and we're done with Jesus. So you see how their political scheming is going on here? So marriage, in their mind, is sort of like a rental agreement. You're just in it as long as it's beneficial to you, and you can leave it without consequence or without cause. Jesus responds to this. And Jesus explained the danger of divorce by explaining the permanence of marriage. In verses 3 through 4, He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. 
So Jesus asked, what did Moses command them? Did Moses command them that men should get a divorce? Did Joseph, did Moses command that men should get a divorce? He permitted a man to divorce his wife. He never commanded a man to divorce his wife. And the reason he permitted divorce was because of the sinfulness of hearts. Divorce was a concession to regulate sin. It was not God's original will for men and women's relationships. Divorce was the concession when it actually became the lesser of two evils instead of the greater of two evils. The other thing I want to point out for you is this. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, the Pharisees were looking at the very front end of the verse and saying you could divorce a wife for anything indecent about her, and they're looking at this as a green light for men to divorce their wives. But Jesus is going to say, you need to look at the whole context. Like, look at the four verses surrounding it, and you'll see it's not meant to be a green light to so you can divorce your wives. It's supposed to be a red light to stop <laughs> sinful men from hurting their wives. You're actually reading it completely the wrong way. Let me read for you the, first, the four verses from Deuteronomy chapter 24, which is the full unit of thought that addresses the topic of divorce. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, he who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now let me summarize this for you. Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses, are designed to put regulations on divorce, not to encourage divorce. Like, look at some of the regulations here. These verses discourage hasty divorce by making the man explain in writing the reason for the divorce. Now, if you're married, have you ever had one of those arguments with your spouse that it gets real heated and you're yelling at each other and at the end you don't even remember how the argument started? Amen. He says amen. And you don't even remember what the argument was really about other than at this point, this point it's just a bunch of emotions? I think everybody's been there. Well, here it says, if you're going to divorce your wife, you better be able to put it in writing on paper the reason you are divorcing her. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be getting divorced from her. You don't have a just reason. Number two, these verses provide the woman with a certificate of divorce to protect her dignity and to protect her from interference by her former spouse. Now, 
say a husband and wife get into an argument and they sort of end up separating for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, over years, that woman meets another man and she goes to get married and start a family and start a family unit. And her former husband comes up and says, you can't have her because I'm still technically married to her. But if she had a certificate of divorce, that provides her the ability to move on. That provides her to start a new life. So that certificate of divorce is actually there to protect her so she can move on into the future. Number three, these verses made it impossible for a former spouse to remarry his former wife to discourage thoughtless divorce. So if a man divorces his wife, until she is remarried, he can keep working on that relationship. But once she is remarried, he is never allowed to have her as his wife again. Even if her second husband dies, you cannot have her. Because it's, once you've divorced her, you are done with her. It discourages thoughtless divorce. It discourages hasty divorce. And Jesus says it here in verse 5. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The reason the provisions for a divorce were put in place in Deuteronomy chapter 24 is not because God desires divorce, but because of the hardness and sinful hearts of men who would make relationships de 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 degenerate into divorce. You want to know what God thinks about divorce? He says it real simply in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. In that day, divorce was treated as a casual thing. It should never be treated as a casual thing. Divorce is always a tragic and painful thing. That's why God says, I hate hate divorce. Now, as we continue, Jesus sort of jumps back to Genesis, and you'll see why. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." What was happening is these Pharisees were losing Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, something indecent about her, uh, to be rationale for divorcing wives. And in the Judaism of that day, if you wanted to find a weightier argument, what you needed to do was go earlier in the Scriptures. So Jesus goes earlier than Deuteronomy. He goes to the book of Genesis. He goes to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, the creation of marriage itself in Genesis 2, verse 24, with Adam and Eve, with God officiating the wedding. And he tries to draw some points out of the way marriage is supposed to be. And here's what I put down for you. What happens in marriage that makes a divorce so painful. First thing, number one, God created marriage to be a permanent bond. You notice how God created one man and he created one woman. He made the man and the woman for one another and God officiated their wedding with one another. 
God made them to be together, and God made Adam and Eve to stay together. And Adam and Eve's first marriage set the pattern for all subsequent marriages. God did not make Eve, Sally, and Greta. And so Adam could have 20 years with Eve, divorce her, and then go 20 years with Sally, and divorce her and go 20 years with Greta. And God never designed it to be that way. God created one, one man, and he created one woman, and he created them for life. If you think about this, with Adam and Eve, like you couldn't divorce anyone else and get married to anybody else because nobody else existed. So marriage was created by God, and when it was created by God, it was created to be a permanent relationship. It was created to be a lifelong relationship, which is why this attitude of casual divorce in that day was so wrong, which is why the attitude of casual divorce produces so much pain. Because when you break a marriage, you're breaking a relationship that was designed to last for life. Next thing we learn, point two. Marriage makes a new family. All other relational bonds come after your spouse, even your parents. It says in Genesis that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Marriage creates a new bond and such a significant bond between a husband and wife that he leaves his parents. In fact, his loyalty to his wife is a higher loyalty than to his own parents. So what you have is marriage creates a new family unit in a new family relationship. And this is why when marriages break apart, they're so painful. Because you are breaking a bond, a family bond, a bond that was intended to be even stronger than your relationship with your own biological parents. This is why divorce is so painful. And divorce should never be treated as a casual thing. Because marriage was meant to be a permanent thing with a powerful bond in it, a family bond. Number three, marriage, Paul says, turns two people into one person. And you notice G Paul quotes that twice from Genesis. Marriage turns two human beings into one. And this is not just talking about the issue of sexual intimacy. This is talking about practical life between two people. When they are married, a husband and wife become literally knit together. You notice they start to think alike after a while. They know exactly how the other person thinks, how the other person lives. Everything about them is connected to one another. And you cannot tear two people who have become one person apart without incredibly devastating consequences. Jeremy, go ahead and put that photo up there. As I was thinking about this, I uh, thought about co-joined twins. And here's a photo of some co-joined twins. 
those are two people that have been joined together as one. What would happen to those children if somebody came up to them and tore them apart? Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the tragedy? Could you imagine the fact they, both of them, may lose their very life? That's what divorce is like in marriage. Taking two people who have now become one flesh united together and tearing them in half. This is why divorce should never be a casual thing. Divorce is always a tragic thing. It's a devastating thing. It's a painful thing. Number four, God says marriage can only be between one man and one woman. Incidentally, do you notice God is the one who created the very institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24? And since God created the institution of marriage, that means God gets to define what the institution of marriage looks like. And he says it's between one man and it's between one woman. Now today what we have oftentimes going on is we have people in our society that think if we can just get the government to change the rules, we can change marriage. We can redefine marriage to be between two men. Or we can have marriage be between two women because we've changed it in the government. But folks, the United States government did not create the institution of marriage. Marriage has been around a long time before this country ever came into being. Marriage was created by God, and so he gets to define it as between one man and one woman. Number five, in marriage, God seals a couple together. Jesus says in verse nine, what therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. That when marriage takes place, God joins a couple or seals a couple. The, the Greek term here is literally yokes a couple. The mental picture you have is how you have two oxen and the owner of the oxen puts the yokes on the oxen. Now the oxen, they could, when they have the yokes on, they could fight each other, spend a lot of time and energy and they're not going to go anywhere or do anything. But if those oxen, now that they are joined together, actually work together, they are incredibly productive far more productive than either of them could be on their own. And that's what marriage is like. The couples that work together can do far more than either of them could do on their own. But God is the one who does the yoking. God is the one who does the joining to make them as one. And if God is the one who created the institution of marriage and who seals that institution of marriage, Men should be careful to try and tear apart an institution that God has created and a union that God has made it. That's why he says, let man not tear apart marital bonds. So, we've seen that divorce should never be considered a casual thing like it was in that day. It's always a serious thing because God created the institution of marriage by nature to be permanent and the bond by nature to be extremely powerful. Now we continue to verses 11 and 12. And Jesus says, those who divorce and marry another 
commit adultery. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Well, the debate that Jesus has had with the Pharisees, that seems to be over. Jesus has won the debate by going earlier to the book of Genesis and leaving Deuteronomy behind. But we know that they're in a house at this point in the Gospel of Mark. Whenever it says they're in a house, we find that's a time where Jesus is giving some extra special explanation or instructions to his uh, apostles that he wasn't giving to the public. And this is what he says about marriage. Whoever divorces their spouse and marries another commits adultery. In other words, Rabbi Hillel, who said you could divorce your wife for any reason whatsoever, he's completely wrong. Even Rabbi Shammai, who said that you can divorce your wife because she had some kind of marital impropriety towards you, she showed her ankles in public, even he's wrong as well. Marriage is for life. You cannot divorce one another. Now, the apostles, they are shocked at this. The high bar that Jesus has for that marital bond. If you go to Matthew, you can see their reaction to this. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, I mean, it's better not to marry. You mean you could never get divorced? Divorce has to be, or marriage has to be for life? They're like, that's crazy. Now, before we go too far into this, some of you who are a little bit more well-schooled in scriptures are thinking, well, didn't Jesus say something else about this topic? Didn't Jesus say there is a situation where a couple can get divorced? Isn't there an exception clause in there? May not be in this scripture, but is it in some other scriptures? Well, let's talk about that. What is the divorce exception clause? I told you earlier that Mark is characteristically very short and often leaves out a lot of details. Matthew, in this parallel situation, is much longer and throws in a lot of extra helpful details. And in this case, that's what he does as well. Look what he says to just tell more details of how Jesus spoke. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In other words, if a spouse has been unfaithful to you, then it is legally allowable that divorce can take place. That's what Jesus says in this context. But here's where the challenge comes in. Matthew has this exception clause Mark does not have the exception clause. Luke, also which has a short account of this, also does not have the exception clause. Why does Matthew include it and Mark and Luke leave it out? Here's my answer. I think the reason that Mark and Luke leave it out is because divorce in the cases of adultery is obvious. After all, it originally was the death penalty. 
And nobody's even questioning that situation. Luke, who fluffs it out for a larger audience of people who might not have that cultural background, tells you those extra details, or excuse me, Matthew, who fluffs it out, tells you those extra details in case you miss them. Now, let me mention this as well. What about the issue of remarriage? Uh, after the first service, somebody says, well, it looks like it, Jesus says you can divorce your spouse in the case of adultery, but does that mean you're allowed to remarry somebody else? In the first century, if you were allowed to divorce your spouse, remarriage was also included in that. They wouldn't have those two separated. Jesus says this, sometimes your marriage is going to be hard. Sometimes your marriage is going to feel unfulfilling. Sometimes you will meet somebody that seems more exciting. Sometimes you may think that a new spouse would be more fun. But don't hit the divorce button. There are incredible consequences to hitting that. Devastating consequences to hitting that. Because marriage was created to be permanent, the bond of marriage is incredibly powerful. The only reason you want to hit the divorce button is in the case of adultery. And I would say, this is me saying, not Jesus or the Bible, but I would say you only hit the divorce button, which is sort of the nuclear option. You only hit it in the case of persistent adultery. Having counseled for over 25 years, sometimes you find a couple that's going through difficulties and they come into your office and one of them says, well, uh, my spouse is cheating on me. They're talking to somebody else online. Well, that's not the right thing to do. That's definitely a sinful choice they're making, but that is not adultery. Other times they will say, well, my spouse, they cheated on me. They're, they're asking forgiveness. They know what they did is wrong, but I have to get a divorce, right? No. If you have somebody who's repentant and making changes, I would counsel you not to get a divorce. I would counsel you to work on your marriage and not use the nuclear option because the consequences are so devastating. But if you have persistent infidelity, unrepentant infidelity, the nuclear option of divorce is there not to give the unfaithful spouse the right to move on, but to give the faithful spouse a chance for a hope and a future. That's what it's in place for. Now, some of you may say, what about the rest of the Bible? Does it address the issue of divorce? Yes, there is another place in the Bible that addresses that. Apostle Paul talks about the issue of divorce. So what does Paul say about it? Paul says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 
For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, at the beginning, Paul says, now I say this, uh, not the Lord. Some people misunderstand that. They think that maybe that means this passage is not inspired. <laughs> no, that's not what it means. What Paul is saying is, I cannot quote Jesus on this one, so I will just tell you on this one. And Paul at this point is still speaking as an apostle. He's inspired by God. And he's talking to these people in Corinth where there's a number of mixed marriages. Like you have one Christian spouse and another one who's not a Christian spouse. And he says, you find yourself in that situation. You as the Christian spouse seek to stay in that relationship to be a good influence on your husband or to be a good influence on your wife in hope that that will actually lead them to Christ. And the same thing if you stay in that relationship, you have a really good opportunity to be a good influence on your children as well and lead them to Christ. But if the situation comes where the unbeliever insists on leaving, let them do so. And you are free to remarry. So the Bible so far has given us two clear instances when divorce, the nuclear option, is acceptable. One is in the case of adultery where Jesus talked about it. Number two is in the case of abandonment where Paul talked about it. Now the question becomes, while these are the only two options clearly spelled out in Scripture, are there other options out there that are not addressed by Scripture? And I would say be very careful about trying to find them. But you could sort of say they may exist. I'll give you an example. I had a counseling situation a number of years ago where we had a husband and wife who both claimed to be Christians. But this husband had a drinking problem. And he would go home at night and he'd start drinking. And he would not remember these things, but he would start yelling at his wife. He would be abusive towards his wife. He was striking his wife. And the next morning, she's bruised and battered. And he says, well, I don't remember doing a thing. And she says, you have to stop drinking. And that man shows the bottle over his bride. And after a while, she says, I needed to separate from you for the sake of my life and for my safety. And he continued to choose the bottle over his bride. And eventually they led to divorce. Now, Paul doesn't address that situation specifically in Scripture. You could say maybe he has abandoned her because he certainly did by choosing the bottle over his bride. But those situations are out there. I would just say be careful about being quick to try and find them. Remember, divorce is always the last option. It is always the nuclear option. And it always has a fallout because marriage is designed to be permanent and the bond of marriage is powerful. Let me summarize it. Number one, we've learned God created marriage to be a lifelong relationship. Divorce may look like an easy answer, but it is always a costly and painful answer. Divorce should never be treated casually because marriage was created to be permanent and powerful. Number two, there are times when the Bible says divorce is permitted. Jesus permitted divorce in the case of adultery and Paul permitted divorce in the case of an unbeliever insisting on leaving. Number three, 
The church's attitude toward divorce must combine truth and grace. We must hold to the truth about when divorce is right and when divorce is wrong. But as the church, we must also be quick to extend grace to those who have sinned in this area, who have confessed their sin and are seeking God's forgiveness of their sin in the area of a relational breakdown and divorce. We, as the church, must not treat divorce and adultery like it is an unforgivable sin. Jesus died on the cross to forgive sins like adultery, to forgive sins like divorce when it was done for absolutely the wrong reason. The scripture says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if Jesus forgives great sins as his church, we must too. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, I ask that you would help us as we have studied this topic of divorce, that we would hold truth in one hand about the sanctity of marriage, the permanence and the power of marriage, and about those two instances you've spoken about divorce. When we hold the truth in the one hand, but may we hold grace in the other hand. I pray that as a church, we would not be people who are unforgiving and unloving of those who have gone through a difficult relationships that maybe have spun apart in ways they never hoped or ways they never planned. I ask that you would help us to be forgiving and loving to others, just like you have been forgiving and loving to us when we've sought your, your freedom from our sin and we've confessed our sin to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.